Well, it's time to worship now through the Word. We've been worshiping all along. We're just changing the method. And uh, thank you for singing those great hymns with me today. We'll be in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14, if you'd like to go ahead and preemptively turn there in your Bibles. This is our fifth message in the book of Acts, and this series is called Boldness and Power. So if you're just joining us today, we are working through the early church as Luke presents it in the book of Acts. Last week, we studied the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and we'll continue in that chapter two today. Sometimes in life, there's moments when something goes from uncertain chaos to clear understanding. Uh, It feels like those movies that I remember from my childhood, which by the way, is the 80s and 90s, all right? Just to shock you a little bit. Uh, Those sports movies that you remember watching where the team is at the breaking point and they begin to argue with one another. It's like, you know, halfway, 60% through the movie that's kind of in the formula. The camera pans around to everyone. They're in their individual fights and just shouting over each other. And you can just hear it's just a chaotic scene. And then all of a sudden, maybe a coach or maybe, you know, the captain of the team shouts out, quiet. Or maybe they do that whistle that I could never do with the two-finger whistle, you know, know, the loud one. And everything just kind of stops. And then there's that we have got to come together speech. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe you remember those old digital illusions that we used to have on the walls in, in classrooms in the 90s. I used, to, I used to love looking at those things. I had to look up the name. It's called an autostereogram. You know, it's those pictures that when you look at it, it just looks like pixels and kind of chaotic colors, randomness. But if you do the thing where you put it up really close to your face, kind of open your eyes and slowly move it away, and you don't really focus on anything, you can see like a shark in the background. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, y'all were looking at me like, what are you talking about? Thank you. I need you a little more next time, okay? That 3D image kind of pops out. Sometimes, maybe you've heard before an orchestra plays, there's a lot of strange noises when they kind of get into that tune-up phase. You know, the violins, they got to get to A. How do they normally get there? Uh, just kind of a weird sound of a lot of a lot of things going on the brass players are you know cleaning out the spit pipes I know what you're doing they're tightening up the drums all those sort of things you know and then the conductor comes out and it kind of goes from lots of noises to when he comes out then he boom silence and then the first note and it's all together it's a beautiful thing when you think of it in many ways this is similar to what we will experience in this text today. After last week's message, there is a very large and confused crowd that has gathered outside the upper room where the 120 have been meeting. Loud noises like a mighty wind, the sound of 120 people speaking languages that they don't know. And some in the crowd are amazed, we're told, but some are mocking, thinking everybody's drunk. So there's confusion, there's noise, Tension has built up, the crowd was gathered, and it's perfect, perfect right pickings for someone to commandeer this moment to make sense of it all. This is actually kind of the dream sometimes. Have you ever been to a concert when it's like, you know, maybe they'll call me up on stage? You know, those kind of moments where it's like, it would be great if someone could just step up here and do this. Well, this happens at the day of Pentecost. Uh, Peter stands up and answers the call. 
This is one of Peter's bright moments, full of the Spirit. He steps into the moment. He brings clarity to the scene. He makes sense of everything that's going on. He would not let the ripe moment go past its prime. He knew God was working, and he was ready to preach what I think we can call the first Christian sermon to the Jews who were gathered on this day. So before we look at the first half of this sermon, would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts? Lord, it's only by your help and by your hand that we understand and take away truth from this text today. Lord, help this not to just be a lecture, but help these words to penetrate our hearts. Lord, for us to see the truth that you have hidden in your word for us, and God, that it would make real lasting changes in the way that we worship you and that we know you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Acts 2.14, if you want to go ahead and turn, we're picking up in the scene we left off last week. The 120 are proclaiming the mighty works of God in other languages. They've seen little flickering flames above their heads. There's been violent wind noises. The crowd has gathered. Jews are visiting from the Feast of Weeks all over the empire coming to see this spectacle, and they've all kind of gathered at what's going on, what's this sound? And that's where we left off in Acts 2.13. The crowd says they must be drunk, and so that's where we're picking up with Peter in verse 14. Read with me. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. I wish he would have said, because, you know, we don't do that kind of thing. But, you know, hey, I digress. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Today's theme is making sense of Pentecost. So I've divided Peter's Pentecost sermon into two. I want you to know that. We're only doing the first half today. Uh, It seemed to me as if there's a break between uh, 14 and 24 where he lays the groundwork uh, explaining sort of the chaos. And then next week we will get into when he introduces David as the example, I think, is the second portion where there's more details to his argument. So in the first portion this week, we're going to see Peter make sense of, number one, the obvious outpouring of the Spirit, the obvious outpouring of the Spirit. So this crowd needs to understand what's going on, and you would want to as well with the fire and the languages and the the wind. This is what drew the crowd in the first place, so it makes sense that Peter would address it early on. Could you imagine if Peter just sort of started preaching a sermon on Christ and was kind of like, don't worry about the fire and the wind and the languages. Just listen to what I'm saying. That wouldn't work. You have to address what's going on. So in verse 14, we see Peter stands and lifts his voice to address the crowd. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Then he says, let this be known to you 
and give ear to my words. So these are, are Semitic phrases. They, they're linguistically very Jewish ways to address a crowd, which we know is a very Jewish crowd. Um, he's not speaking casually. This would be a serious framing of what you're about to say. Um, it, it's, it's, this is not a passionate outburst. You should know that. Peter's not just giving an explosive sort of on-the-cuff moment. Uh, this is very much a formal speech that he is setting up with the way that he's going to speak. Now, I don't think that means he's pre-prepared and he came with notes, but I do think that he's setting this up as this is going to be a, a sermon that has a start and a finish, and there's going to be clear linear thought all the way through this thing, and that's what he gives. So the first thing he does, even before he gets into the sermon, is what? What does he do? He throws cold water on the drunkenness thing. Right? That's the very first thing he does. And that's always a good strategy, by the way, if you're ever kind of, uh, you know, dealing with a, a debate or something, if you can take the air out of your opponent's number one argument against you right out of the beginning, that's always a good idea. Peter says, nobody's drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. By the way, that was uh, 9 a.m. in their time. Um, also, it was a holy day. This was a, a, one of the main Jewish feasts. They would not have been drinking early in the day to obscure their ability to celebrate the holiday. So that's a legitimate thing that Peter brings up. He immediately dispels the accusation of wine, and then he pivots to an Old Testament text to show this Jewish audience what was going on with the Holy Spirit. And what does he use to make the case? What prophet does he, does he quote from? Joel, yes. A quotation from Joel. Joel was in the Old Testament, a minor prophet, a very short book, only three chapters. Um, if, in case you'd never read it, you could knock it out today uh, after lunch. It tells of a massive locust swarm that passes through the land, devours everything, and brings judgment of God. And yet, in this, in this book, there is a prophesied repentant return to the Lord after the judgment. So the return in Joel 2.28 is followed by an unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Stuff you don't see typically in the Old Testament, Joel has. Um, and it's not on holy men. It's not on prophets or priests or the king uh, or even the Messiah. What's unique about Joel is that men and women, young and old, head of household and servant, all receive the Holy Spirit and prophesy and see visions and dreams. That's the unique piece. And then there's this apocalyptic picture that follows with wonders in the sky and blood and fire and smoke and the day of the Lord. It's very, it's very strange. It's a tough text. And so the rabbis had been teaching up until this point, and it seems like Peter also agreed that there was a large-scale event with the Holy Spirit that signaled the changing of an age prophesied in Joel. Now, this can get complicated, but the Jews had what seemed to be a two-age view of time and history. Uh, it, it, they simply would state it, Jesus stated it many times as this age and the age to come. I know, real complicated, right? Some looked forward and called it the present age and the messianic age. Peter believed and desired to communicate to this crowd that this event that they were watching, this Holy Spirit outpouring uh, is in alignment with what Joel was talking about, which signaled the changing of an era. There is a change of period of era. We saw last week that the Holy Spirit fell on everyone in that room, all 120. 
Just as Joel prophesied, everyone got a tongue of fire. Everyone spoke in other languages. Everyone was prophesying the mighty works of God. So Peter was telling this Jewish crowd, they are witnessing the, not an, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And if they really knew the context of Joel, they would have also understood that Peter was buttering them up for a call to repentance later in the sermon. Listen to what Joel said in Joel 2.12. He says, return to me with all your heart, the Lord says, fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So why the push to repent? Because in Joel, the giving of the Holy Spirit was connected with the day of the Lord a great judgment from God. And then there was a call for everyone to turn to the Lord, call upon him, and be saved. Now, it's debated from scholars. I want you to know this. It's debated whether Peter included the parts about the earth, uh, the fire, the blood, the smoke, the sun, and the moon, whether he meant that to say, this is fulfilled today or there is still a future fulfillment that will look like that at the return of Christ. Now, to be fair, they did see fire in the upper room. The sky did go dark when Jesus died on the cross. Matthew even says that people rose from their tombs. So there was some wild things going on in their day. So they've been seeing these apocalyptic things. But I still would say, and the majority of scholarship would say, there still is an unfulfilled part of this that's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Uh, And the reason that Peter left that in was because he really wanted to get to the last line where he was most concerned, which was to say, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That was the concern that Peter wanted to get to that line. And so he left the entire quotation intact. So let's, let's back up and finish by asking, why did Peter quote Joel? Why did Peter use Joel? Number one, Peter is quoting Joel to explain to the crowd that this is definitely an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they are seeing. The Jews would have understood that to mean something big is happening. Whether they knew all the details, they knew that's telling that something big is happening. This wasn't just a loud party that they stumbled upon in the upper room they stumbled upon a transitional moment in God's redemptive history. Secondly, he's quoting from Joel because he is setting up the theme that blessings come in connection with repentance. That's true today. Blessings come in connection with repentance. They didn't know at the end of this sermon that where this was going. Now, Peter's going to get there, but I'm telling you where he's going. He's going to get to you crucified the Messiah. That's coming. Okay, and so Peter is preemptively warning them, warming them up to the idea of repentance by bringing in Joel and the day of the Lord. Certainly a fear would set in once they realized, "Uh uh-oh, we killed the Messiah. That would make someone scared. And then when you hear, also he said he's coming back. Now you're scared. So they needed to have this answer to what do we do with this information. Peter's bringing that. And third, he quotes from Joel to set up the theme that this is the day to call upon the Lord and be saved. 
The goal of the sermon is not ultimately going to be condemnation. That's, now, that's unavoidable when you crucify Jesus. But the opportunity to return to the Lord, to rend their hearts, to come empty-handed to the gracious, merciful God, abounding in patience and steadfast love, this would be an offer made this day that anyone could be saved that was under the hearing of his voice. So this is why Peter begins quoting from what we might think is a very obscure passage. Most people don't start their day reading their quiet time in Joel 2. So kind of a strange thing. What are you doing, Peter? Why'd you bring that in? That's why he did that to make sense of what the Holy Spirit was doing in that room. So that's number one. The second thing Peter sought to make sense of was number two, the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room. How many of you heard that idiom before? Elephant in the room. Okay, good. Uh, It's a popular idiom that refers to uh, something everyone is thinking but no one seems to be addressing. We're all thinking it. It's like if you came to church today and I had an elephant sitting right there on the stage, okay? And uh, we just went about the service, hymnal Sunday, hey, everybody, you know, just kind of went about the, and then let's preach. Okay, afterwards, let's do some announcements. All right, you're dismissed. Did he ever say why there was an elephant on the stage? No, it would be weird, right? That's called the elephant in the room because of that reason. Well, there was an elephant in the room in Jerusalem beyond the events of Pentecost, beyond the events of the upper room, beyond the manifestations of the gift of the Holy Spirit in that crowd. And Peter's about to address it. What is it? Look at Acts 2, 22 through 24. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, we're pausing there. Because verse 25 begins, David says, and then it goes on. That's a different section of the sermon. So we're going to stop there today for our part A of this text. Um, The elephant in the room is Jesus Christ. And by the way, he always has been. And by the way, he always will be. He's the name that sucks all the air out of the room. He's the one that splits your calendar from B.C. to A.D. or if you're really fancy, B-C-E to C-E, which we all know what that really means. And as much tension at the name of Jesus can bring to a conversation, even today, I want to put your mind in Jerusalem where he was crucified just 50 days earlier. Just 50 days from it is finished. I want you to know that moment was probably still pretty fresh. The people were still talking about the water cooler. They're talking about it at the dinner table. The news cycle in the ancient world was not like our 24-hour news cycle today when, you know, something happens and, wow, we're shocked. We're crying. Hashtag. And then tomorrow, new thing. It's all over. It was not like that in the ancient world. Things stuck around in the consciousness of the people for a long time. 
As people, as Peter makes sense of the elephant in the room, he does so by using three words that I want to use. If you're taking notes, I've got three sub points under number two that are, we're going to develop now. Um, that these three words, I think, tell the story of why, what Peter was teaching about Jesus. Those words are attested, delivered, and raised. I really wish they were signed, sealed, delivered, but I just couldn't make it work. Attested, delivered, and raised. First, Peter says to the crowd, Jesus was attested with works. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, might circle that one, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What does the word attested mean? It means to prove something, to demonstrate something, to exhibit something. It's to show in a proving way. Peter says to the crowd, Jesus was attested to you. By who? Look at your Bible. By who? Who did the attesting? By God, yes. God proved or demonstrated who Jesus was. How did God attest? Go ahead. Thank you. By works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Where did, let's keep going. Where did Jesus do these works? In your midst, right all up in your business, Jesus did all these works. And I love the last phrase, just for good measure, comma, as you yourselves know. Don't play like you don't know what I'm talking about, Peter says. If nothing else, Peter gives one of the reasons that Jesus did miracles. So we at least learn this today. God was attesting who Jesus was by the power that he gave Jesus to do those miracles. It was to show who Jesus was. Jesus should at least by the people of God been put on the same pedestal as at least Moses or Elijah or Elisha who also did miracles. They should have at least been aware, the people of the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, surely you knew somebody. I mean, how many degrees of separation could there have been in Israel that it took to know somebody who was at the feeding of the 5,000? Surely they knew about it. Surely they heard the raising of Lazarus. I mean, that took over Jerusalem. They were trying to kill Jesus once that happened. Surely they had met one of the, some, someone who heard about the paralytic. And there was multiple paralytic people who were healed by Jesus. And some of them, Jesus said, hey, don't, don't go telling everybody. And, and then some of them said, okay, I won't. Hey, everybody, Jesus healed me. And they went and told everybody. So surely they were aware of the miraculous works that Jesus was doing. He did not do secret miracles primarily. I mean, there were some done behind closed doors, but I would say if you put a pie chart out there, most of Jesus' miracles were very public. These were God's ways of attesting to the fact that Jesus was no ordinary man, and that should have tipped them off, that when you combine it with what he was saying about himself and the miracles, that he was the Messiah. So Jesus was attested with works. He didn't come saying, trust me, with no proof. No, he attested himself by the power of God. Secondly, Peter says Jesus was delivered to be crucified. He was attested. He was delivered. Look at Acts 2.23. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, I could probably squeeze an entire sermon out of that verse alone. Think about why Peter is addressing this. 
This is a lot like the end of chapter 1, where he felt it necessary to mention Judas as they struggled with how to make sense of this. They struggled with how an omniscient God could pick Judas as a betrayer and one of the 12 disciples at the same time. Well, this is the same thought, just in a different example. With one spirit-inspired sentence, Peter helps everyone understand how we are to think about the sovereignty of God and the choices of men. All right? So I'm going to settle it all today. I'm just kidding. But I do want you to look at this verse very carefully. There are three categories of actors against Jesus in this text and three verbs to note. Delivered up, crucified, and killed. Those are the three verbs in that, in that verse. Delivered up, crucified, and killed. Now, who did what? Verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of who? God. So God's involved. This is not a fleshly act of bad justice, good guy, wrong place, wrong time. No, God delivered Jesus up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This plan for Jesus to go to the cross was appointed, definite, and designated to happen in the exact way that it happened. This play was drawn up in God's playbook exactly the way that it happened. Galatians 4.4 says, in the fullness of time, exactly when it happened, on the day that it was supposed to happen. The divine foreknowledge of God had a date with the cross from eternity past. 1 Peter 1.20 says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. John says in Revelation 13.8 that those who bow down and worship the beast do so because their names were not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So I want you to know, church, the cross was not plan B. It is plan A because it achieves maximal glory for the Son of God. The cross is not a divine version of when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. No, God wanted lemonade before the foundation of the world, and God said lemonade is very good. And so Peter wanted the crowd to understand that their God, Yahweh, was very much in charge and over the crucifixion of Jesus, that they should not see this as a failure because it had to take place to make atonement for sin, to satisfy the wrath of God. It had to happen to make him the final Passover lamb once and for all. It was part of God's plan that Jesus be delivered up. Now here's where it gets deeper. Even though Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, they were still accountable for their sins that they committed to cause it. Who killed Jesus? It was a Roman cross upon which he died, held in place by Roman nails, driven into his flesh by the hands of a Roman centurion, at the order of a Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate. But it was a group of Jewish leaders who captured him in the Garden of Gethsemane and held a late-night trial accusing him of blasphemy according to Mosaic law. It was the voices of Jewish men who refused Pilate's deal for Barabbas and who shouted out, crucify him. It was the Jews who put the pressure on Pilate to do their bidding. So what does Peter say 
in verse 23? He says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You got the Romans to do your dirty work. You did it. You were accountable. Even though your sin was a thread in the tapestry of God's divine plan, you are still accountable for what you did. And Christian, I have no doubt that we live in a world where a sovereign God has divinely ordered and known even the smallest details of our days. I do not believe there is anything such as luck or chance. I don't even believe there's a thing such as free will because only a sovereign God is truly free. But at the same time, I see in this verse the willingness of Peter to say that though God planned everything, we are still very much responsible and accountable for the decisions that we make within the framework of his plan. They couldn't lean upon, well, God planned it that way, so I'm off the hook. Nothing we do matters, right? Because God's in charge. Nope. They could not claim that. The Jews standing there on Pentecost needed to hear the simultaneous truth that their God was still sovereign and in control of the situation, but they were still accountable for shouting crucify. Someone's mouth had to shout crucify on that day. Someone's hand had to drive the nail that pierced him for my transgressions. And Judas had to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And I promise you, the greatest scholar cannot understand exactly why or how that works. And you won't until you get to heaven. But I do know that on this day, many of those people who shouted crucify were able to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So Peter says Jesus was attested, he was delivered, and thirdly, he was raised from death. Yes, Jesus was crucified by the hands of lawless men, many of whom were in that crowd. But look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I think this is a purposeful contrast for Peter to say it this way. While both God and men had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection was an act of God alone. It says, God raised him. God loosed the pangs of death. And some think that that should be translated as cords. God loosed the cords of death. Uh, but that word pangs, it really means a shooting pain. It's, it's really like a birth pain. So perhaps there is a wordplay here between the pain of birth and the pain of death. Peter says, it is impossible for Jesus to be held by death. Warren Wearsby quoted, uh, says this, he who raised others could not remain dead himself. Certainly it would be strange if the one who raised Lazarus from the dead did not also raise himself from the dead. Peter now sees the resurrection as an inevitability. It was impossible for death to hold down Jesus so Jesus was attested, he was delivered, he was raised. And these things had to be addressed by Peter because the tension was likely so thick in Jerusalem at the moment. The crowd assembles, there's a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit, changing biblical history right in front of their very eyes. And Peter steps out and he begins to make sense of this confusing scene which starts as chaotic but then it begins to become crystal clear. We also are getting a layout for the template for Christian preaching in this text, that Peter is forming the template 
for Christ crucified, resurrected, drawing on Old Testament examples for support. But what I want for us today is what the crowd at Pentecost was afforded by Peter, and that is clarity in what you believe. I want you to be able to ask questions and get answers. I want you to know what you believe and why you believe. I want you to be able to make sense of the word of God, to understand the gospel, to understand who Jesus is and why Jesus did what he did. So listen, if you don't have a grasp on how to be saved or how to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are ready today to help you do that. We want you to make sense of the biggest decision and belief of your entire life. Remember what Peter said from Joel 2, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It was true then, and guess what? It is true today. Pray with me.